0: This week on the show, we read FreeBSD's third quarter status report, we covered the OpenZFS 2.0 release, which we're very excited about, the check hash checks in UFS file systems is also what we discussed with you a bit, uh, OpenSSL 3.0 dev crypto issues on FreeBSD, and more things in this week's episode of BSD. Now. Now, episode 380, Early ZFS Mass, Recorded for the 12th of December 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by TarSnap, the online backup for the truly paranoid. Go to tarSnap.com slash BSDNow to check it out. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we welcome you to this great episode that we have prepared for you. I'm fairly sure you will find something interesting in here, like always. And we start off with the third quarter FreeBSD status report. Yep. So
1: as usual, there's a giant status report with I think 34 different entries. So there's update from the FreeBSD Foundation on what they've been working on, uh, including their work on Wi-Fi drivers and the Linux driver compatibility improvements to the Linuxulator, which now includes the ability to basically run Ubuntu in a jail, which is getting quite good. Said standard compression in OpenZFS was sponsored by the foundation. Uh, as well as the online RAID-Z expansion, which is also sponsored by the foundation, and modernizing LLDB on FreeBSD, which is sponsored by them. They also had some co-op students working on various things, including FreePBX and Asterix, the VoIP software. Uh, The FreeBSD release engineering team managed to release 12.2 and is working on the retooling for 13.0 based on Git. The cluster admin team working through all the stuff to keep the project running. Uh, the continuous integration team, uh, making sure that we're actually building and testing FreeBSD all the time and uh, reporting problems. The ports collection, many updates, uh, including the fact that they've now crossed the threshold to 40,000
0: packages being generated. That's a lot. Yeah. Very much appreciated. Yeah. For everyone who's doing ports work.
1: So the last quarter saw 9,335 commits. To the head branch and another, almost five hundred to the quarterly branch from a hundred and sixty-seven different committers for head and sixty-three different committers for the quarterly branch. Uh-huh. Of course, there are still twenty-five hundred open problem reports in the bug tracker, so even a hundred and sixty-seven people isn't enough to manage forty thousand different applications. Right. So you know, There's looking always... for more volunteers as yes. always.
0: Yes. That's very appreciated. So, everyone should uh, try to at least adopt one single port. That's me not having adopted one already, but you never know what happens in the future. Details on that. The
1: graphics team has been updating Xorg and Mesa and all OpenGL and all those related things, and also Wayland, um, but they're also involved in keeping those graphics drivers up to date as well. Lots of status there. Uh, Li Wen's been working on. Keeping the Microsoft Hyper-V and Azure images up to date, so there are uh, proper images of all the releases available there. There's a really interesting project from Alex Richardson, who works on the CherryBSD project, to be able to build FreeBSD on non-FreeBSD hosts. So they actually have uh, the bits required in order to compile FreeBSD world and kernel on Linux or macOS. You know, it's now possible to compile FreeBSD without having to be running FreeBSD. Uh, This also unlocks the ability to more easily do FreeBSD in other CI systems like Travis CI and so on, since you can build it uh, using Linux or Mac. Find out if there were any errors building FreeBSD without having to have a FreeBSD machine. Then there's a report from the Git Migration Working Group, uh, who's working on switching us over from Subversion to Git. A more detailed update on the Linux compatibility layer updates and the LLDB debugger improvements. There's the Lua team, which is been working on improving support for Lua and introducing fLua or FreeBSD Lua which is now has bindings for a bunch of different things including uh, the jail interface and ifconfig so that you can do more stuff uh, using that scripting language. And they're also looking at rewriting uh, certctl that I started uh, in Lua to make it better. Mostly to make it faster I think. Rick Macklem has been continuing his work on NFS over TLS. So this uses the existing um, in-kernel crypto framework that Netflix originally built to be able to do NFS over TLS. So you can have encrypted NFS. Uh, Mark Johnson's been continuing to maintain the SysCaller infrastructure for FreeBSD. So this basically fuzzes all the system calls and finds places where it can make FreeBSD crash and provides reproduction cases so that developers can figure out what the problem is and fix it. There's more details on the DRM the Linux Graphic drivers ported to FreeBSD. Update to the Device Tree Sources system, which is uh, used for a lot of embedded things. Ethernet drivers for the DesignWare Ethernet adapter, which is used on a lot of Rockchip and all SoC devices. There's a report from Google Summer of Code uh, from a student who worked on eBPF Express Datapath, or XDP. Updates for the Elastic Network Adapter, uh, which is the AWS Virtualized NIC, and improving that. Improvements to IPsec more arm socks power pc work usb3 gigabit ethernet adapters that are actually able to get uh gigabit over usb usb3 anyway and uh now deep uh, has a link here for a bunch of work he did to make stateless hardware offload for VXLANs. lands uh, so that's vlans that can be encapsulated in over udp and span between data centers uh, there's also an update here on wireless drivers from bjorn and adrian getting to 802.11ac uh, support my report on z standard compression there's a report here on cherrybsd uh, and a lot of the work going on there the risk 5 port updates to grub beehive kde and a uh, report on the new documentation project uh, so getting freebsd's documentation all switched over to ascii Doc, and hugo and i'm glad to see that uh sergio picked that up and uh Ran with it because i've just not had time to work on it at all
0: mm, yeah through all the the things yeah, yeah that's very appreciated
1: yep uh, then there's some work on putluck which is uh, a flavor and image repository for pot which is uh, a FreeBSD jail manager uh, and updates from the puppet team you know keeping releases of puppet 4 5 and 6 working and noting that puppet 4 has now been removed since it's past its end of life
0: yeah so people should uh migrate sooner rather than later
1: yeah that one that one's a bit fun because it's like uh the focus has been to enhance factor four which is a drop in replacement for factor three factor four is a ruby rewrite of factor three which was a c++ rewrite of factor two which was initially written in ruby
0: (laughs) oh great so you have to rewrite all your puppet scripts
1: uh well it depends but it was busy factor was written in ruby then it was rewritten in c++ to be faster and then it was rewritten back to ruby because (laughs) (laughs) reasons
0: Yeah, uh, I remember that um, you can also install factor for uh, Ansible to use it in the in the setup script where it gathers all the information and it can get yep. like extra information. And mm-hmm. yeah, having that is is kind of interesting. Uh,
1: and they noted that Puppet and Puppet Server Seven are uh, and Puppet DB Seven are also uh, slated to be added soon.
0: Oh, good. So that's the yeah. Each of these sections in here has a little bit of. Um, uh, you know, things left to do or a call for help or testing. So if you're interested in any of these, then let the authors know. They're all listed there. And um, yeah, provide some feedback or maybe some missing things like documentation or man page fixes or something. Yeah,
1: there's more detail about each of those projects and the people to reach out to if you have questions or if you can help. Uh, Speaking of that, you can also help with the next quarterly report. If you have or know of anything that's been going on in FreeBSD in the last three months and want to make sure it gets in the report, help write one of these little things. You know, it's a couple of paragraphs or bullet points. It's, it's nothing too fancy and it's easy to submit. They have a sample report. You can just fill out the template with some information and send it in. And obviously they're also happy to have people help, you know, review and copy edit and, and so on to make sure that the report goes out without any spelling mistakes in it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and we thank all the people behind the scenes. Uh, who compiled these reports and cleaned it up a little bit and grouped them. And so that this is uh, a nice report because this is very well uh, read by companies and people outside the project as well as inside. And so if we have these regular team reports or general status reports, then people see, yes, the project is still alive and they can get an overview of the things that happened in the last month, even though they cannot track the project day to day. All right. Yeah, so that was great. But now... Whoa, 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 I would say, because now we cover OpenZFS 2.0. This is the Ars Technica article. You've probably seen it on the interwebs that this has happened. OpenZFS 2.0 release unifies Linux, BSD, and adds tons of new features.
1: Yeah, so uh, earlier in the week where we're recording this, the OpenZFS project released version 2.0, which is part of the new roadmap that says that, you know, every year, there'll be a new major version of OpenZFS, and now, but the big thing that makes 2.0 special is that it's the culmination of two years of work to build one repo that works on both Linux and FreeBSD, Uh, and it basically eliminates the distinction between ZFS on Linux and ZFS on other operating systems like FreeBSD. So as of now, the new OpenZFS 2.0 release is available on FreeBSD. Uh, I think the update to the ports tree went in yesterday. Although I don't think the official packages have recompiled yet, but that only take another day or two. And so you can install that from ports as long as you have 12, uh, a supported version of FreeBSD 12, or uh, FreeBSD 13, or HEAD, has this already built in, replacing the older ZFS in base. So 13.0 will ship with this and possibly even openzfS 2.1 which will add some additional features like DRAID. But like uh, Jim goes on to point out here, if you're using Linux, it gets a little stickier, and it's kind of up to your distro to decide when to update. Uh, So with Ubuntu, they're shipping 0.8, and that won't change until uh, Ubuntu 21.10, which is almost a year from now. But if you use the DKMS thing, where it automatically rebuilds ZFS for your kernel uh, each time, then it's a little easier to switch to a newer version. But doing that on Ubuntu gets very complicated because as they've started to integrate ZFS, more things depend on it and having a different version than it expects could cause all kinds of fun.
0: Yeah, I'm very glad this has happened. And uh, I know there's a lot of things that had to come together and coordination was uh, needed. But nevertheless, it's here. And uh, yeah, we can all look forward to having a unified ZFS on many uh, open source operating systems now. So for the people who have been living under a... Unix rock or some other rock uh, in the last month. So the features that they can look forward to with this new version is sequential resilver, persistent L2 arc, Z standard compression, and redacted replication.
1: Yeah. So this sequential resilver is different than the previous one. Which is, so ZFS has had resilver for a long time, uh, since the beginning. But the main idea there was by using the ZFS metadata you were able to only have to resilver the data that you actually had, right? If you have hardware RAID, it has no idea which blocks on your hard drive have data on them and which are not used, uh, right? This is long before trim and so on, and it just doesn't make sense for the RAID controller to try to keep track of that anyway. So because of that, if you replace a failed disk, hardware RAID has to resilver the entire disk. Basically copy, parity for the entire thing. Now, if the disk is only 10% full, that takes a lot longer than what ZFS does. Uh, also, ZFS has the ability to know that disk went offline at transaction 500, we're at transaction 520, I only need to do those 20 things, not the whole drive as well. But however, when disks are mostly full, it turns out the ZFS way can actually be slower because you have to walk through the entire system and be like, okay, this block and check it. and and. Instead of reading the disk in sequential order on the disk, you have to jump around to each block and, you know, the same object might have been written across a bunch of different times, right? If you append it to the file or something Uh, and it makes it a lot more random. So there was a previous feature that slightly confusingly was at the time called sequential resilver, but now I think it's called, uh, I forget what it's called, but basically what it tried to do was take those random uh, reads that would have to be done and sort them and batch them up so that you would do more sequential but it still wouldn't be fully sequential. That was an improvement, but it still didn't help that much. This feature, sequential resilver, literally uses the space map, which is just for each block on disk is it allocated or is it free, to copy the entire contents of one side of a mirror to the other side. So this sequential the new sequential resilver only works on mirrors. It doesn't work for RAID Z. It does work for DRAID, but that doesn't exist yet, so it doesn't matter. So, because in the space map, you don't have access to the object information, you don't know what the checksum is, but you just know, you know, the next 100 megabytes are allocated and then the 100 megabytes after that are not, or whatever. So, you can just go through the whole hard drive very quickly and uh, know which sections need to be copied and which don't. So, in the case of a mirror, where one side has failed, when you put the replacement disk in, instead of reading randomly and putting it in that order on the replacement, you can just bulk copy all of the allocated space and skip all the not allocated space, but do it sequentially, so it goes as fast as the hard drives can go, or SSDs. This. The problem is, you don't have the checksum, so you can't verify. However, since because it only works with mirrors, if you have a mirror set and one half has died, and you're replacing it, the checksum doesn't really matter. You only have one other copy to copy from.
0: Right, the other one is stale anyway.
1: So if, if, if there's something wrong with the first copy, you were the data was lost anyway. But so what sequential resilver does is copy it all sequentially. And then once your parity is restored, right, that you're no longer at risk of if the other hard drive fails, you lose everything, then it starts a scrub to go back the old fashioned way and check all the checksums. But it means, you know, if a scrub was going to take five days and and the sequential resilver was going to take 12 hours, it means you get back to less chance of failure after 12 hours and then spend the five days. So it t- it takes longer in total but the amount of time you're at risk is much shorter.
0: Yeah, you're safer, uh,
1: quicker. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't work for RAID Z. For RAID Z, it still does the old-fashioned, you know, we have the semi-sequential healing scrub, or whatever you want to call it. But for mirrors, this will increase the rebuild speed by a lot. Okay. And then persistent L2 arc, you know, the L2 arc is, let's use a fast device to make the cache bigger. So as things are about to be removed from the memory-based cache, Uh, we can write them out to the SSD-based cache or whatever it might be in order to still have more data that's going to be faster than having to get it from the original hard drives or whatever. With that, the problem was when you rebooted, it was lost. So the way that the L2 arc works is in memory, in the arc, when we're running out of space in the arc, we will take blocks that are there, move them to the L2 arc, and leave behind just a pointer that says... This data is actually over on this L2Arc device. When you reboot, those pointers in memory aren't there anymore, and so you end up with... we treat the L2Arc as if it was empty and start refilling it again. This feature means that when we move stuff to the L2Arc, we append to a little linked list or a pair of linked lists on the L2Arc the information needed to recreate those headers. So now if you reboot, after the pool is imported, in the background, uh, it will read through that linked list and repopulate the ARC with all those pointers, and now any data that was cached in
0: the L2ARC will still be cached uh, and, and be available. Very nice. I, I think a lot of people will make use of that.
1: Yeah, it depends how useful L2ARC is in your setup. Uh, sometimes it's not that helpful, or sometimes the the memory it takes In the arc to have those pointers to the L2Arc. If your L2Arc is too big, you end up spending all of your memory on those pointers and not having room for caching anything. And obviously caching in memory is usually 10 to 100 times faster than off even really fast flash. Yes, it does make the L2Arc feature much more useful, since if you've spent all the time loading that data onto the L2Arc, it'd be nice to use it instead of just overwrite it. Then Z standard compression we've talked about before, but that's now officially part of the release. Uh, and Redacted send Receive uh, is an interesting feature. Sometimes you want to replicate a dataset, but there's some data in there you don't want to replicate. I think in particular, this was designed at Delphix, where they're a, a database appliance company, and they needed to be able to do, hey, we want to do our backups, but there's some data we don't want to back up, like, say, credit card numbers. So with this Redacted send Receive, you take your data set that you want to back up, you clone it, then you go on the clone, and you erase all the data you don't want. So that could actually be, you know, uh, an SQL query that goes through and says, set all the credit card numbers to zeros uh, or something. Then you can create a bookmark, which is like a snapshot, but it doesn't keep the old copy of the data. So a bookmark is just a timestamp, basically. And you can use that to then send that data set minus all the bits that you want to filter out. So basically you use everything you overwrote as kind of a mask to hide Uh, some information i think the example uh, they used in the original talk for it was you know they had the picture of the original team that worked on zfs at one of their halloween parties Uh, because it turns out halloween is usually a big day for zfs it just happens to be when it was originally released and when it uh, went open source or whatever and you just want to redact the faces so if you just make this mess that erase just the faces, then you can send everything else that's in the
0: picture. Ah, I see. Anyway,
1: there's also a bunch of interesting new commands, including uh, ZFS wait and Zpool wait, which allow you to wait for a background operation to finish. So for example, you can do Zpool wait scrub, and the command will just sit there and wait and exit once the scrub is done. So it makes it easy to make some other operation not happen until a previous one is done, even though the previous one's running in the background and might take days.
0: Yeah. That might not be desirable. But yeah, it's good that the pool can now uh, wait for some actions. Plus the usual in performance improvements and optimizations under the hood uh, that are not linked to any specific feature, but make ZFS uh, uh, better in, in overall performance. Yeah.
1: And I think the most useful thing to me was... The project started at the hackathon a couple of years ago. Has been completed. The zfs and zpool man pages have now been split into subcommands.
0: Oh yes, that's also good. So
1: when you want to look at the zfs man page, you it's just a link to a bunch of other man pages, and it's much easier to say, "I just want the man page for zfs send."
0: Yeah, and that gives you just these options.
1: Yeah, instead of getting like a fifty-page man page that is hard, you know, to find just the bit you're looking for quickly.
0: Yeah. All right, then, yeah, we definitely recommend you try it out. Um, in production, yes, no?
1: Yeah, this has uh, been tested very thoroughly. And, you know, it's been available in the FreeBSD ports tree for a while now, and people have been playing with it. Uh, and it's the default in FreeBSD head. Uh, so a bunch of my machines have been running it for months now.
0: Oh, excellent, yeah. And so finally, people can encrypt their pools and, uh, or their data sets and, yeah be all crypto about it um <laughs> yes uh,
1: we don't support booting from encrypted data sets yet oh yes that's, that's a, important to know a FreeBSD yeah.
0: shortcoming really
1: well he's Linux doesn't either
0: but yeah we'll get there but for now people can play with the other features in there
1: <laughs> yeah well and you could encrypt your home directory or other data sets just not the one you boot from because mm, the bootloader sure. doesn't understand it yet
0: yeah so yeah uh always uh yeah, appreciate it for everyone uh, who did work on that, who sent in pull requests and updates and fixes and testing. So yeah, we really look forward to trying it out. It's time for the ra- news roundup. For the roundup of news, <laughs> I almost said. So here we have an interesting FreeBSD revision for you because also in UFS land there were some updates and changes. Kirk McCusick. Uh, father of UFS, I think you can call him that, uh, added various new check hash checks, that's a bit of a tongue twister, but check hash checks uh, have been added to the UFS file system over various major releases. Superblock check hashes were added for the 12th release in cylinder groups and I know check hashes will appear in the 13 release. And Kirk being Kirk, very uh, verbose in his uh, commit messages, explaining everything, and that's what we like. So when a disk with the UFS file system is writably mounted, the kernel clears the feature flags for anything that it does not support. For example, if a UFS disk from a 12-stable kernel is mounted on an 11-stable system, 11-stable kernel will clear the flag in the file system superblock. That indicates that superblock check hashes are being maintained. Thus, if the kernel is later moved back to a 12-stable system, the 12-stable system will know to ignore its incorrect check hash. So,
1: yeah, otherwise it would be like, hey, this data is wrong. And it's like, no, it actually was just updated by a system that doesn't understand it.
0: Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, if the only file system modification done on the earlier kernel is to run a utility such as growfs that modifies the superblock but neither updates the check hash nor clears the feature flag indicating that it does not support the check hash, the disk will fail to mount if it is moved back to its original newer kernel and this patch moves the code that clears the file system feature flags from the mount code, this is FFS underscore mountFS, to the code that reads the superblock FFS get and as FFS get is used by the kernel mount code and is imported into uh, libufs, all the file system utilities will now also clear these flags when they make modifications to the file system.
1: Yeah, so if you use an older version on uh, a boot script or a bootstrap tool or something to do growFS to make the file system larger, it will now no longer not clear that flag and cause the newer kernel to freak out that, hey, the check hashes are wrong, your file system's been mangled. <laughs> yeah.
0: And as suggested by John Baldwin, FF, FSCK FS check has been changed to accept and repair bad superblock check hashes rather than refusing to run. Uh, this change allows FSCK to recover file systems that have been impacted by utilities older than those created after this change and is a sensible thing to do in any event. And this work was sponsored by Netflix, and it should also by now be available in stable releases. Yeah, this has been uh, done in October. And so, yeah, this is generally available. Great. Uh, then next we have uh, some news or uh, issues in OpenSSL Dev crypto on FreeBSD. Uh, ah, yes. Uh, uh, so John Mark Gurney shared <laughs> his, this worrying mailing list bit or find Dead. So he just learned that the OpenSSL devs decided to break Dev Crypto on FreeBSD. And Benjamin Kaduk uh, posted this output. So, in, when you do an OpenSSL speed test with uh, Engine Dev Crypto with an AES 128 uh, cy- cyclic block count, um, then you see no, it's oh, Cypher block chaining, Cypher chaining, right. Um, then you see, oh, that's a bit of an error that you see. You should not see any speed things. You only see errors. Yeah, I and think in particular... Invalid arguments.
1: I think this means that it was already broken and they were just cleaning up old code. But. <laughs>
0: okay. And so John raised uh, using LibreSSL in FreeBSD. If non-Linux compatibility isn't a priority anymore, uh, Michael W. Lucas responded in the tweet thread with, with something he wasn't aware of. That the support cycle of LibreSSL is shorter than FreeBSD's release lifetime, which means they won't switch. Hmm. And this is the manifestation of what uh, Rubenert just talked about. Didn't think uh, I'd get a specific example again so quickly. And quote, as a FreeBSD guy, as well as a Mac user, I agree that among the biggest challenges today are Linux first slash only development, as opposed to thinking about the underlying architecture, unquote. And we all realized how per- perilous under the resourced and staffed the OpenSSL project was during the heartbleed days. And is this another manifestation of that? Or are we just witnessing yet another project that preferences Linux above Unix?
1: Well, I think part of it is if, if FreeBSD really thinks... OpenSSL should support its dev crypto, then some people from FreeBSD need to help the OpenSSL project do that, you know? I know there are some people from the FreeBSD project or who are, you know, well-versed in FreeBSD in the OpenSSL project, like Benjamin Kudak, but, you know, does OpenSSL have enough knowledge about FreeBSD and its dev crypto in order to make it work? And just expecting them to do that maybe isn't fair either. You know, I'm not saying that we should have to go and do it for everybody. But uh, I think in general, I don't know that Dev Crypto support is that useful. Like the point of the Dev Crypto is to be able to offload the cryptographic work to an accelerator. Whereas nowadays, especially with things like AES, the assembly optimized versions that are built into OpenSSL that take advantage of CPU extensions from AMD, Intel, ARM, etc. are probably going to be faster than You're what Dev Crypto might have done anyway. Um, I think the only accelerators that are very common right now are like the Intel QAT things, the quick assist guards, and those are mostly used on lower end machines where the CPU just doesn't have enough horsepower to do enough encryption. So they're common in like the Xeon Ds that are meant to be used as IPSec gateways and so on, where they have a very small number of cores and are low power. And so just you don't want to necessarily do it all on the CPU. So I don't know how important dev crypto support really is in the end. I don't know who's using it and if they are, if is actually helping them at all. But it does uh, really go to Ruben's point here about we have to make enough noise not to get ignored. But we also have to do more than just make noise and actually provide the expertise and so on that these things need to help support that, you know. Supporting DevCrypto in OpenSSL is a bunch of work for them and also a maintenance cost. They have to keep it working. it means they need to test it or whatever. Uh, I don't know if OpenSSL really has a build bot type infrastructure. But I know one of the things that's been helpful in the past for FreeBSD is getting infrastructure like that set up, for example, with LLVM and GNOME and so on, making sure that we maintain the FreeBSD bits for their CI system so that every time they make a commit, it gets tested FreeBSD and reports a problem immediately if there is one, rather than eventually they make a release and then we pull it into ports and then we tell them it's broken. And it's like, well, we worked on that nine to 18 months ago. Nobody's interested in fixing it now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, be early, uh, be part of the development, even though you're just uh, using an upstream. So that's helpful to get the feedback because by then they can redesign and make decisions that also accommodate your project. Okay, but definitely good to know. And now we have a little known, well, well, or a little new star on the desktop distributions uh, sky, I would say, because here on Yeah, I think we talked about
1: this one... Once originally, because I never really understood the name.
0: (laughs) Okay, so over on os108.org, we found a fast, open, and secure desktop operating system based on NetBSD. And there's a new release out, apparently. Uh, This is a 9.1 XFCE AMD64 release. And it's based on NetBSD, so you have your tried and true user land. But they put in a little bit more... Uh, to make it a separate distro or release. So you uh, you find the um, checksums and the uh, ISO download locations there. Uh, and to install OS108 uh, to your hard drive, you use the sysinst utility. And the process is basically the same as installing NetBSD itself. Uh, you can refer to the NetBSD guide for installation. And be sure to enable the option log and partition to your fast file system version 2 file system. And if you choose a custom partitioning scheme, which makes the updating between the leases easier, uh, be aware that OS108, as NetBSD, installs software to user package. So the slash user partition should be the largest partition on your drive. And once the base install is finished, let DHCP configure your network connection automatically, set the console keyboard, create a root password, and set the root shell. And all caps lets us know that please make sure to create at least one user being of group wheel when the configuration uh, menu appears okay yeah so otherwise <laughs> you cannot uh, make any administrative changes or switch to root probably and then you can uh, find instructions how to mount the cd and run xfce and the same for usb installers okay there's also a wi-fi guide available so that should get you running and you, if you look at the screenshots on the website that we linked in the show notes you can see how it looks and maybe you find your new favorite desktop distribution. There's a forum, there's a telegram group for people uh, to answer questions and uh, check it out. Now it's time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, Open BGPD 6.8 P1 Portable has been released over at openbgpd.org.
1: Yeah, the big changes in 6.8 are the BGP CTL command now has a reload command uh, and it can take a reason argument and it will use an administrative shutdown communication to its neighbors so that you basically log why you had to do that. Um, the show rib command now has support for VPN v6 as a family of options. And the BGP CTL show command can now output JSON formatted data. They've also integrated some patches to support building OpenBGPD on Alpine Linux. Uh, so currently, OpenBGPD. Uh, is known to compile and run on FreeBSD, Debian, Ubuntu, and Alpine, and is their hope that uh, packagers for other distros will help them get things working there. The uh, P1 patch fixes uh, security errata in BGPD. The roa-set parser uh, could potentially leak memory, but that's fixed uh, with
0: P1. Okay, good. And just when you think you saw it all, then there's something new coming around the corner. An irc bot we found. So you think, wait, awk and IRC, yes, exactly that. So the author here realized that awk is ideal for expect-like automation. The difficulty he faced was how can awk control another program, in this case an IRC client, both standard in and standard out, like awk would need to both read from the program standard out and write to its standard in. And they solved this problem, for this program by creating a FIFO for taking inputs and hook the program to it. And you can see below in the code uh, what they did. They did a make FIFO to create a first in for a first out and called it UPS. Wait, are they really? Okay, <laughs> UPS, why not? Um, and then do a netcat over to chat.freenode.org.6667 uh, and pipe that to awk into here document and there you just print received, and in there ah you print the reply, and once this bot is set up and running without human intervention, uh, in case you want to interact with this IRC session, you could access the input using cat, okay? Then you cat to that yeah uh, fifo, and then provide your nick, your uh, identity password, and sure enough, you can then chat. There's a little <laughs> diagram how it looks, and that way you can connect to Freenode IRC using SSL instead. Uh, either one of the provided uh, below works as well. with A little bit of an open SSL invocation. And cool. Taking it a little bit further, a pattern can be observed here. The main program is the IRC session, where its outputs are streaming through a pipeline unmodified. The bots uh, takes IRC output as standard in, and their outputs are the bot pro a uh, bot command that should be sent back to the IRC. Then we can use a tiny T utility, like proc tree, to chain those bots together. And yes, that is the way to use IRC these days. <laughs> cool, very nice.
1: Then we have uh, an interesting video here on how to use Docker on FreeBSD with Beehive and SSHFS.
0: Ah, yes, it's a series of um, uh, videos. Uh, I watched a couple of those. And yeah, the, the guy's really um, also looking forward for more uh, suggestions what he should cover on the on his channel. So um, if you want to see specific things, then let him know. And yeah, this one tells you how you can use Docker on FreeBSD where SSHFS is used to connect um, the, the uh, Linux system with the... Uh, one in Beehive.
1: Yeah, the 9PFS stuff is getting there, but it's not quite there yet, and so SSHFS is a good thing to use in the meantime.
0: Yeah. And last on the list here, uh, we have the Unix command language from 1976.
1: This is uh, some scanned images combined into a PDF, apparently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is a markdown version of it, though.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, So people can read that.
1: It's explaining how shell works and how pipelines work and a lot of the
0: useful bits. From the people who wrote the original uh, implementation, Ken Thompson. So yeah, the historians would be happy to uh, get their hands on this if they haven't read it because they were around way back when. So, uh, but also for the newer historians, they can also have a look. Speaking of historians, (laughs) you might want to back up your important stuff so that it's available after ages of use, (laughs) I would say. And what better solution to take than Tarsnap? Because then It's on the dangerous internet cloud, but it's encrypted. Only you, the person with the key, can get back your backups when you need them, hours or ages later, depending on the use case. And Tarsnap does all that for you. It creates keys locally, then strips out some of the uh, deduplicated stuff, compresses it, and after all that is done, then your data leaves your computer and goes into the AWS cloud for storage. And then uh, when you need it one day, hopefully never, then you can retrieve it as soon or as long as you have the key available. And it's very cheap pricing, uh, but affordable for pretty much any kind of use. You can find the prices on tarset.com. and 250 picodollars roughly translate to 25 cents per gigabyte month. It's very cheap. and So even big data sets um, that you back up are not very expensive. And since things are deduplicated and some stuff you already backed up already, is in the cloud, then it doesn't get copied again. So only the differences make it out. So that makes um, your backup not a very expensive experience, but a very uh, fruitful one. Clients available for the BSDs, the Linuxes, the macOS systems, SIGWIN, or even the Windows subsystem. And now the feedback and questions section for the people who are interested in Getting some useful advice. And if you are uh, also in the need of a bit of help, then send us um, a message to feedback at bstna.tv and we'll hope to um, cover you in a future episode. And that way we hopefully not help not only help you, but other people who might have the same problem, but are too shy to ask. Uh, the first one that we have this week is Santi about OpenRC. Uh, Santi writes Hi, guys, congrats for the show and for keeping it going for so long. I guess that's the most difficult part of it. Mm, yeah, yeah it's, we're gonna be it's a routine. Coming now. up on
1: what, seven years pretty soon? Yeah. You've, yeah, you've not it's...
0: done all of that, but I have. Right. <laughs> but still, yeah, it's, I mean, we have it productionized uh, and a lot of things are, are done behind the scenes by JT, our um, producer and director, so we kind of um, make it possible only with his help. Okay, um, so the question or the comment here is, just one silly uh, question. What happens with all the integration done by systems for FreeBSD and OpenRC? Is it dead? Any plans or intention to continue it and to merge it?
1: Um, so I think most of the bits for ports exist uh, and so on. I don't know if they're still pursuing it. Obviously, someone else could if they were interested in it as well. In the end, I don't know that the gains were all that big versus, you know, having to rewrite the RC file for every port.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a bit of work.
1: But, you know, a lot of more popular ports will have support for it because some other operating system also uses OpenRC. So, you know, if you look at a popular project, they have a whole directory with the RC type thing for eight different operating systems, Uh, and so it's not that big of a deal either. I don't know. I know there's been a little bit revived work on making the existing previous DRC stuff support more parallelism as well, but I don't know if that's really going anywhere either. There's also some work coming up on boot trace, which can help figure out what parts are taking so long, which would make it easier to uh, identify any of those issues in fix them
0: yeah many of these things uh need a human driver not a not a kernel driver uh, and Mm -hmm. someone who really drives such a project forward and um does the advocacy for it and you know you know does the flag waving and all that and that uh goes a long way of making a feature appear sooner rather than later and i think at the moment there's no such person for that yeah i think the
1: big things is you have to get other people excited about it and you have to show what the value of it is going to be and you know I'm pretty sure that exists. Like, I, I'm sure that there is value in switching to OpenRC. Uh, oh, yes. I've just... There haven't been as much effort to explain that to people or to uh, outline what's left to be done to get it over
0: the line. Mm. The, the review should still be out there somewhere in the, in the fabricator, but I'm not sure if there were any updates in the meantime or what the latest things were that were discussed. Um, but maybe someone wants to revive that, then... Uh, definitely check that out and uh, try to revive that. If it's important to you, then we'll see it one day. Okay, so hopefully that answered your question. And next up is Trond with a uh, Python 2 and Mailman question. And that goes like this. The FreeBSD project and DollarWork both use Mailman 2 for their mailing lists. With forthcoming removal of Python 2 from the ports tree, uh, what steps will the FreeBSD project take in this regard? Uh, he noticed, I noticed Maiman 3 core is available in the port tree, Mail Maiman 3, but what about the two Django-based components, Postorius and Hyperkitty? Would Postorius and Hyperkitty get their own ports or must we manually maintain those two
1: components? I don't know. This is a question you'd probably have to ask the Postmaster team rather than me. I know one thing we're looking at is we currently use PiperMail for the archive that people access, and Baptiste has done a prototype of HyperMail as a replacement uh, with a few modifications required to make the URL stay the same so that, you know, it won't break the last 30-something years worth of, of mailing list yeah. archives. I don't know what the components Postorius and HyperKitty do and whether FreeBSD makes use of those currently or not, so I don't know the answers to that. Yeah. If you do have to maintain them, then please do make ports of them for everybody else. <laughs> Uh, Mm. but i don't know exactly what postmaster's uh, intentions are in that regard
0: at this point if they track that or have some thing that they already migrated to python 3
1: yeah i i think their plan is to continue to use mailman i just i don't know what those two django based components are and whether they are required for how freebsd uses it
0: Mm. yeah but uh good to bring that up so we can uh, (laughs) we can also mention it here and people might want to listen and you know, get this thing a bit further up than just, oh, this is this is happening somewhere. Oh, it's, it's tomorrow. Oh, we should have done something. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, we'll get some attention from people who are uh, uh, more inclined to make changes there. So, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps up this uh, item and this episode as well. Don't forget to send us feedback at bstnauto.tv. We're also live on Twitch while we record this. So, this is twitch.tv slash now we're also on Twitter and um, these are the usual spots where you can reach us uh, IRC as well so there is um, where is that ircgeekshed.net slash bsd now and yeah these are the places where you can find us and interact with us while the show is running and hopefully you like this episode and check us out next week as always thanks for listening